Welcome back. Friday, September 3rd, 2021, as we head into this Labor Day weekend. I hope um, if you're driving somewhere fun that uh, you're safe. And if you are uh, staying around that um, you have a meaningful uh, Labor Day weekend. I have a kind of interesting question for you all I wanted to pose. And then I wanted to do something special here. But you can think about it while I... um, well, I speak into the uh, in, in, in what we sometimes call my monologue here, the first segment. Before I get into it, though, this question's been on my mind for the thousands of Afghanistanis, Afghans we are bringing in to the United States. The question is this. Obviously, the first question is naturally what is to become of them, what will become of them. But. The concern I have, and it's based on a conversation I was having with a friend, is if the children or the young people from Afghanistan coming here are then put through the regular or routine American experience, let's say starting with public schools, what some call government schools, I probably should, are we going to be turning them into freedom-loving Americans or are we going to be turning them into something else? So the question to you is this. If you had the ability to adopt or let's say you adopted a couple of these refugees like we did families, certain families did with the Lofts boys of Sudan, etc., what would you teach them? What would be the first thing you would want to teach them? What would be the first thing? I'll tell you what it would be for me. The first thing I would teach them is that this country is perhaps the best regime ever founded in the history of the world because of several things. First and foremost is the disestablishment between the church and our politics, declaring the ground of government of the people, for the people, or, well, of the people, by the people, and for the people, completely untethered to their religious doctrines, faiths, or beliefs. I would argue that that would be the first thing these Afghans should understand because they come from a world where that is unheard of. And what made us a world unheard of, new order of the ages, novus order seclorum, if you will, was that very thing, was that very thing that we, in establishing this country, you can get this from George Washington's letter to the Newport Congregation. In establishing this country, ask not what God you believe in, but that you obey the laws of the United States and at all times give it your head adherence. You will be left alone to toil under your own vine and fig tree, George Washington said, so long as you allow others to do the same. The Afghan refugees come from a society, a culture, a world that is centuries removed, 
centuries removed from that understanding, which we take for granted. And I think that would be the most important and first important thing to discuss with them. And in doing, of course, it's about the First Amendment. Of course it is. But it's about something far prior to the First Amendment. Far prior. And that is the freedom that we all have given to a country whose leadership comes from the people, not from the kind of thing that netted up other governments in theocracies. That is to say, we were the first country ever founded not on the divine right of kings or some theological or sectarian truth. We were founded, in other words, with rights that were ours before the Constitution, that we used the Constitution to solidify, but that were given to us not from his God or your God or your interpretation of his God or your God, but by the laws of nature and of nature's God. They are rights we all enjoy and inherit in all of us, irrespective of where we were born and to whom we were born. Being an American, being an American is quite sufficient enough to be what Abraham Lincoln called our political religion. I am not, do not misunderstand me, suggesting that groups should not try their best to evangelize or experience and express their freedom of religious speech, or for that matter, their right to practice their religion, their free exercise of religion. I'm not suggesting we crib that. I'm not suggesting we don't engage in that. What I'm suggesting suggesting is as a first institution of teaching to these Afghan refugees is that we teach them that about the United States, that they can make that choice. They can listen to Bill knocking on their front door, evangelizing his faith, or me knocking on their front door, evangelizing mine, with them being able to make a decision about whether to let us in or to let that religion into their hearts and souls without the fear of death. Without the fear of death. The knock on the door is used as a metaphor for many a tyrant's regime because it's usually the government or an agent of the government. That's done here only after a crime has been committed. And the crimes that you can commit will, that will be punished by the state cannot be found in a theological interpretation exclusively. I think that's where I would start with them. And I think I would start with them why. And the reason I would start with them on the why also gets us to an appreciation of the rest of the Constitution. I would hope, I would hope that the work that has to be done with absorbing the Afghan refugees that we are being asked to absorb is not left exclusively to the public and government schools. 
I would hope it's not left exclusively to them because they, like the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, have failed us. They have failed us in instructing in citizenship. They have failed us in instructing about American civics and history. They have failed us in instructing. And not for want of money. Not for want of money. A country that spends nearly a trillion dollars on elementary and secondary education a year should not have the proficiency rates and the below basic rates that this country has. The decline of the West is a huge reality facing us today. It will increase or slow down based on what we decide to do with our schools. I'll repeat it. The decline of the West will speed up or slow down based on what we decide to do with our schools. And by that I mean with our children and what kind of schooling we are going to give them. We long ago gave up on the notion that public education was about educating the public. It no longer means that. It should. And then the question obviously becomes, what should the public know? What should our public students know? It used to be the best way to assimilate a child. And then we found these interesting studies when it came to children from other countries and other cultures. One of them included, and I'll never get this one out of my head, one of them included this fascinating conclusion. Children that came here at their middle school ages from other countries identified themselves as American. By the time they graded, graduated at high school, they were identified themselves with hyphens. The more education you get in our public schools in this country, the worse, Amer the worse kind of an American we are producing. It's a strong statement, but we better come to grips with it as we are at being asked to educate and assimilate tens of thousands of more people. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 602-508-0960 is the number. 602-508-0960. This open line's Friday. I proposed a question earlier. I'd love to uh, hear what you think or what your thoughts on it are. If you were to adopt or were able to adopt some Afghan refugees, what would be the most first, most important or primary thing you would want to teach them? I gave you my answer, at least my tentative one in the in the uh, previous segment. I'd love to know yours. As we go into a three-day weekend, I typically like to provide certain prophylactics going into it because I know there's going to be often a lot of family time, often a lot of friends time, often a lot of times that unfortunately in these times don't permit congregations or get-togethers that also don't include politics. And the politics of today happens to be about Trump, happens to be about Biden, a little bit about Afghanistan, and a lot about COVID. And the people who tend to mostly decry COVID having been politicized are those on the left. Listen carefully, and you'll notice 
we don't complain so much about it. We simply point out that they're the ones doing the politicizing. And they started a long time ago when, when Donald Trump was president. They started politicizing this virus, including, including those who took joy in the fact that former president got COVID and those that wished him not a speedy recovery, but a speedy death. It became politicized all of last year. And the mark of a tyrant is the one who says, just do what I say and don't debate it. Don't politicize it. It became politicized when wearing a mask was seen as patriotic duty. And it became politicized when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris decried taking a vaccine that was developed under Donald Trump and that would be distributed under Donald Trump. All of that, yes, tends to be water under the bridge, except we're still being told not to politicize this thing. Stunning to me at the joy of schadenfreude I still see in columnists who haven't learned decency the first time. We have one of our very own here in the Arizona Republic, the media reporter Bill Goodkunz, who's basically taken today's column as one big study in schadenfreude over the fact that the podcaster Joe Rogan got COVID-19. And he takes his column, which seems to have no word count limit whatsoever, ever, or editing, two or three efforts to make sure you got the point that at least four conservative radio hosts who spoke out against the vaccine have since died from COVID-19, and then he runs you their names. They weren't names I knew. It doesn't matter, except for the fact that they may not have been as prominent as someone who's inspecting and looking and digging for conservatives who died of COVID to dig up and find and promote. feel terrible for anyone who dies from COVID. But the notion that this is in some ways condign, punishment, or deserved is to me unforgivable. Unforgivable. You simply do not hear those things about people who succumb to any other disease. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm going to guess that Joe Rogan's going to be just fine. That's the thing. You write this column, people write these columns as if we're not going to remember them next week when Joe Rogan is back behind his microphone and in full throttle. That's the thing. And you won't write a story about how Joe Rogan was right. You're going to maintain that he was wrong. Even though Joe Rogan will have been sick and recovered. As if hundreds of thousands of Americans don't get sick and recover from not only this disease, but other diseases every single day, week and month in this country. I was talking to someone the other day about masks and vaccines. She said something interesting. She said they've moved the threshold. I said, how so? She said, well, they've moved the threshold. They've moved the threshold in the sense that it used to be if you got COVID, that was the worst thing. 
even though they forgot there was a 99% success rate. But now they're saying if you get, if you don't get the vaccine and if you don't get the, and if you don't mask and you deservedly get COVID, then you're in real trouble, having still forgotten the 99 plus percent survival rate. Survival rate's higher than skin cancer. So as we go into the weekend, I just I just want people to remember some of these basics. And I guess it's as good a time as any for me to recite the list I wrote down, just for fun, that some of you have been asking me to keep repeating. I just jotted it down. Maybe I'll write it up somewhere. But when it comes to following the signs, there's not a single major important piece of advice we've been given that has maintained veracity or held for more than 60 days. Not one. And I'll start with Anthony Fauci saying in January, February of last year, don't change your life. That became change it radically. We were told pets can transmit the virus, only to learn later pets cannot. We were told at the end of February, don't wear a mask. That became wear a mask. That became, as the director of the CDC, Robert Redfield, said, a mask being better than a potential vaccine. Which led Anthony Fauci to say there will be no vaccines in 2020, which, of course, he was wrong about as well. The no mask to wear a mask became wear two masks. We were told to wipe down groceries. Now we're told to don't bother. People remember leaving their groceries outside. We were told that it was important to wipe down not just groceries, but have industrial cleaners Wipe down workspaces and hard services. Now we're told it's airborne and people have stockpiles of Lysol and Clorox, Clorox, Clorox wipes they don't know what to do with. We were told by the president of the United States that if you are fully vaccinated, you can take your mask off. That was only last month. That since has changed to recommended masking with the full vaccines. This one just came to, and I added it to the list as I was driving to work. I thought about what was Anthony Fauci saying about booster shots, which are all the rage now in July. In July, he was saying there won't be a need for a booster shot. That was July. Today, he can't work fast enough to get a booster shot available. That is to say, a third shot. Joe Biden said at a CNN town hall, and it was repeated by the CDC, that if you are fully vaccinated, you won't get sick or die. 12,000 have. We were told if you were vaccinated, you would not spread the virus. We are now told that you can spread it just as much as the unvaccinated. We were told that the majority of hospitalizations are of COVID patients are amongst the unvaccinated. Except in Israel, the most vaccinated country in the world, 60% of the COVID hospitalizations are people who have the vaccine. Anthony Fauci said herd immunity would be reached between 60 and 70 percent of the population. He later changed it to 70, 75 percent, and then a third time from 75 percent to 80 percent. When an enterprising reporter asked him, <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leaveson Show, 602-508-0960. I have a special guest coming up with a very interesting perspective I wanted to share with everyone. 
uh, and we'll do that in just a few moments. Uh, first, let's take a call from Mike in Carefree. Hi, Mike. How are you? Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. I, uh, it, it, it occurs to me while I'm trying to educate my younger friends about the nature of the American experience that they're the people that are trying to take over the world again are the proponents of Machiavelli and Hobbes that people need this thing and they need to be re-exposed to Locke, the writings of Jefferson and the New Testament. Where would you, um, where, yes, and, and, and what, what about that, Mike? What about those teachings do you want to communicate? Well, natural rights and forgiveness and the independence of man, I might add to Tocqueville to that, the analogy where Tocqueville comes across a free man who is working frantically to fix a fence, and he says to the man, where is your master? And, and, and the man retorted, you know, that man ain't been born yet. Yeah, yeah, right, and, exactly. And... and that's, that's what they need to learn, because they have, throughout millennia, been under the, law, under the thumb of uh, absolute rulers. And, and, you know, and like in the Leviathan, you know, it's like this, that, that, many believe that that is the natural state of man or it's anarchy. And, and that is the, the pathetic justification for utopian thought and Marxism. Yes, and I and I and I think that is what is 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 what is so easy to communicate. It's a, it's a cheap way to teach, right? I mean, I think we're on the same point here, Mike. To, to teach people to um, shall we say enslave themselves is the natural condition and doesn't require a lot of teaching in an awful lot of this world, in an awfully large part of this world, right? I I I I can't, I guess, communicate strongly enough. What we take so often for granted here being such a rarity, in, in, in fact, an unfamiliarity in so much the rest of this world. They simply have no concept of the kinds of freedoms you and I talk about right now, enjoy, and live with. Well, it's the difference between my liberal arts education in the 70s and the liberal arts education today. Um, they are evolving from the age of reason and uh, and, and do you, yes I, I no I agree I, I it's palpable uh, it is they have moved from the age of reason to the age of passion and remember you, you often yeah. you often reference the allegory of the cave yeah. it's such a perfect example yeah 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 no it's 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 a it's an important one because it's so trenchant right now when you think about people who lived in caves, don't you? And that was their entire world. Plato understood this hundreds of years before the year zero, right? Hundreds of years ago. He understood that if you are trained to look at something and told it is the truth, you believe that is the truth. And then when someone brings you outside and shows you the full light and the full experience of life, what's your first reaction? Your first reaction is to doubt them and think that's the false thing. And then as you adapt, you learn it is the real thing. And as you go in to share that 
so to speak, good news with your former friends who are fellow captives, they think you're crazy. It's a very, very, very difficult thing. You cannot move from barbarism to civilization easily in one generation. It's a very, very difficult task. We used to think it took something like 12 years to give just an American child that necessary education. We can't do it in 12 years. We can't do it in 12 years. And that's someone born here. Think about someone who's never understood the kinds of civil liberties and civil rights and human rights you're talking about. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-5080-960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Open lines Friday, 602-508-0960 is the number if you'd like to call in. I have a special guest coming right up in studio to tell a story from a perspective that I think will shed a light on what a lot of uh, a lot of Afghans are going through and about to go through. Sam is in Carefree, though, first, calling in on the virus. Hi, Sam. Hey, Seth. Good to talk to you. Good to talk uh, to you. I love Carefree, by the way. That is one of my most favorite areas in Arizona. I yeah, just tell. just got a house up there. Oh, and, congrats! Uh, remodeling it. Uh, I'll just say one, two words: money pit. That's all I got to say. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Someone and was telling me that about that. a boat and about something else recently. I don't remember a horse. So probably this may have been discussed. I'm sure it has, but I, I, I think it really needs to be stressed. Um, you know, the common cold is a virus, and it's never been cured in thousands and thousands of years. The winter flu is a virus. It's never been cured in thousands and thousands of years. So I think we all should just take a step back now and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, when I was a kid, I got the smallpox vaccine, you know, back in the 50s. Bingo. No smallpox. When I was a kid, I got the polio vaccine. Bingo. No polio. Uh, this is not a vaccine. It's not close to a vaccine. And uh, so if we haven't cured the common cold and we haven't cured the flu, in six months they're going to knock this thing out of the park? Well, obviously it's been a major failure. It it is interesting to me when everything we have been told about it has been turned on its head and how rapidly. First, right? I mean, first we were told it would... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm just saying the freeway signs. Hey, listen, we all travel the freeways. We're, you know, I listen, my tax money pays for that. So it says, you know, get vaccination and COVID-19. Right. And I'm going, that's bull. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that's not even close to being true. You know, it's manage whatever, maybe manage it, but cure it, end it. Yeah, no, uh, I, 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 I think no. it, I think it is wrong. continuing and perpetuating a lie. It is continuing yeah, and perpetuating no a lie. And I want to say some other things. Uh, I've had a couple of friends of mine who got covid by the way, I wonder if they'll change that sign to get the booster. Yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah. I no, I'm, I'm serious. I, I, right. Because, you know, people think being vaccinated means two shots. I wonder if they're going to know that that means a third now. Well, Seth, think about this. We have the flu. It comes every winter, okay? And every winter, it's a different flu than it was last year. And we all go get shots. And what, what makes anyone think that this is any different than that? It's a chameleon. It keeps changing. So 
what you know, and the next year we get a booster, and the next year we get a booster, and the next year we get a booster of, of this, you know. Which I have really, I, my, Sam, I, I really have no huge argument with if it were effective and if it did what they said or if they said the truth. Well, I wouldn't. Yeah, I really wouldn't I have, have a problem. To, I get that there are people who are very susceptible to severe health health risks if they or, or worse if they. I get it. I get it. I just don't know yeah. that this is. What it's been told. Well, I, I, I take ivermectin. I've been taking ivermectin as a, as a prophylactic for oh, probably three or four months, uh, and I cannot take a lot of prescription drugs. I I don't take really any prescription drugs because I have tremendous reactions to them. I take ivermectin, nothing, no reaction, no adverse anything, and I also take hydroxychloroquine. I take five ivermectin once a month, and uh, I mean that's my prescription, and I take uh, hydroxychloroquine twice a week and nothing you know it's not affecting me i haven't dropped dead nothing i mean it's it's absolutely to me uh who's very uh, susceptible to prescription drugs it just doesn't affect me not at all so here here's so, what here's the world we live in sam and it's an odd world people like perhaps the media columnist at the arizona republic i was speaking of earlier people people here will condemn you for giving out false, fake, and harmful information. You know who they won't condemn? They won't condemn the major journalists who said that taking hydroxychloroquine will kill you. They were saying that. People don't remember it. They were. It's not they true, no, no. and hey, they won't be held accountable. There's a there's a local... Uh, I don't know how to describe this guy. Anyway, he's Yeah, no, I know the story you're talking you about, about, probably. About yeah. And, you know, the guy's just a creep. Um, anyway, he's a creep. But um, the point is, here's the, here's the point. The point is, ivermectin, if it works, it will win out. You cannot, you will not be able to suppress millions and millions of people using it. And I've had, as I said, I've had three friends, they got COVID, they took ivermectin, boom, gone. They didn't even stop. They didn't even have a, you know, a slow day. So, um, you know, I think the point is, is that do we, do we deal with an a, a experimental drug or do we try and look for other solutions that are time-tested over decades. Uh, that's where we are right now. Yeah, and why do you think there's an investment? What's your theory as to the investment? Oh, I mean, listen, you know, I, I, you know Seth, I'm, I'm like you, you're like me. We, we, we're kind of history buffs. We go way, way back. And I think I've mentioned this on your show before, but I've gone back, to, you know, I, I love history. I've gone back to the pharaohs, and I'm going to tell you something. When a young pharaoh came into Egypt and he took over, what did he do? The first thing he did was hired all his buddies and pals, put them, to, put them in positions of power, paid them. Everybody started making money, and it's never really changed. It, it hasn't changed, ever. And I think, personally, I feel that uh, there's tremendous, tremendous worldwide distribution of these things. The money, the money is astronomical. I can't even imagine what kind of money they're making. But, and, you know, and there's one, not a lot of money to be made in hydroxychloroquine, as I'm told. Yeah, one solution, nobody makes any money. The other solution, you know, Bill Gates, I believe he said it was the greatest investment he ever made. Well, I, uh, you, I, it may or may not be. I, it's just clear to me that something is very off when you have the anecdotal evidence that you do that has worked for a lot of people. And whether it worked for you or not, we don't know, right? I mean, it could be coincidence or not, but it certainly hasn't taken a, a, a negative toll on you. And it is, after all, a medicine that has been around, safely used for decades. And, and for I everyone who says, as our Arizona columnist, Arizona Republic columnist says, you're taking an animal drug, 
Betty yeah. doesn't say that when you take Benadryl. For the reputable, yeah. you know, a drug maker. Yeah. So the columnist, he doesn't know what he's talking no, about. No, he doesn't. He you doesn't. Know, he, he sits there and says, well, gee, you know, I guess, uh, they, as I said, I heard it on the other day, you know, they give uh, antibiotics to horses. So I guess if I take an, uh, an antibiotic, I guess I'm taking horse uh, Yeah, or Benadryl. Or Benadryl. Know, it's an absurdist yeah, Benadryl. argument. We go on and on and on. Yeah. So, you know, they do this. But I will, I will say this. I do believe that ivermectin, the use of these uh, therapeutics, is spreading. And people are sitting there and saying, wait a minute. I, I took your drug. I took your experimental thing. I have a shot. And, uh, and it, the one thing is, one thing they cannot do, they, uh, just like you were saying when you, when you started your, your hour, they can't take back what they've said. That's they right. They can't sit there and say, hey, trust me. You know, no, no, this is all good. And they keep, they keep pushing and pushing, and people are going, wait a minute. No, I mean, you told me this, it's not. You told me that, it's not. Now you're telling me a booster. I didn't, oh, yeah. I didn't really oh, yeah. I, I said it controversially, controversially perhaps, but I, I maintain it, Sam. And it's a fairly bold thing to say, I think. It's a pretty vainglorious thing to say, and yet I think it's true. I've written a fair amount and spoken a lot since the advent of COVID on American soil last year. And I think my record of saying things that are true far, far exceeds Anthony Fauci's. That's a vainglorious thing to say. I also think it's true. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. That is the song, I think. That gave rise to our whole discussion about Anthony Comstock, if I'm not mistaken. In any event, Jim is in Phoenix. Hi, Jim. How are you, sir? Hello, Seth. Better than I deserve, probably. Uh, that's sweet. That's sweet. I, uh, but I, um, I've called him before uh, to share with you my latest favorite book. Um, this time, I actually have two. I was a little tardy in calling about the first one that I wanted to tell you about, wanted to share with you. Uh, it's called Cynical Theories by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. And the um, the book cover, the title is cleverly written critical theories with a line drawn through critical and cynical written. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. I'm with yeah. you. Okay. Uh, subtitle, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. It's um, They are... Um, they are first-rate scholars, but the, but the book is very readable, and um, they take on uh, uh, the beginnings of postmodernism and where it has led, and they totally expose the fraud, fraudulent scholarship of uh, social justice, critical race, critical... Uh, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. Cynical theories. Oh. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Give me this another one. a great one. Okay, here's here's the next one, and this I have to say, this book has affected my outlook more profoundly than than uh, well, it would be a short list. American um, Greatness by Chris Buskirk and Seth Liebson. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. And along That's with true. that book, along with that book, um, and interestingly enough, I'm reading. I'm also reading. I've got two or three books all going all the time um uh, uh shapiro's book authoritarian moment ben shapiro uh-huh ben shapiro yes yep. thank you um 
He kind of mentions mentions in passing, uh, somewhat derisively, uh, a book called Between the World and Me. Between the World and Me, okay. By Tanisha Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, right. Yes, Ta-Nehisi Coates. C-O-A-T-E-S. How do you say his first name? Ta-Nehisi. Ta-Nehisi. Yeah. Okay, good. Glad I got that sorted out. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Worth reading. uh, Yes. um, It gave me an understanding of, I've always been like, get a grip, people. We got rid of slavery. We got rid of Jim Crow. We got rid of redlining. We did that, that, that. And so I couldn't really under, understand how, what the reality. No, I got to run, Jim. But I appreciate the uh, the references, uh, the recommendations. Yeah, it's interesting. For all we talk about redlining and discrimination, we just created a lot more in this world. Special guest coming right up. Don't go away. We'll be right back. <laughs> 